The Real Food Reel is proudly sponsored by Melrose Health. Founded in 1979, Melrose Health has been delivering improved health over three decades by developing natural, delicious and innovative health foods from the best natural and organic ingredients. Their Healthy Kitchen Oils range has just launched and includes my favourites, liquid coconut oil, grass-fed ghee and avocado oil. Visit melrosehealth.com.au or check out at Melrose Health on Instagram to learn more. Welcome to The Real Food Real. I'm Steph Lowe, the natural nutritionist. We're shaking things up on the podcast and each week I am joined by our cast of experts, including Kirsty Worth, Phil Maffetone, Kale Brock, Ali McLean, Katie Pettuccini, and so many more leaders in the fields of real food, gut health, sports performance, holistic wellness, and optimizing your health, metabolism, and longevity. While you're tuning in to today's episode, would you take a screenshot of your smartphone and share it on social media with the hashtag RealFoodReal? I'd absolutely love to know that you're tuning in. And while you're there, why not share this episode with a friend who also needs to hear our information goldmines and aha moments. Sharing the show means we can continue our mission of simplifying nutrition and showing the world that health starts with what you choose to put on your plate. Without further ado, let's dive into this week's episode of The Real Food Real. In today's episode of The Real Food Real, we are joined by our regular guest, Dr. Damien Christoph, to explore food combining. You will learn whether fruit should be consumed on its own, what foods and beverages to avoid to optimize iron absorption, and whether drinking water with a meal is problematic. We also discuss special considerations for states of ill health, how to optimize your digestive health, and so much more. Hi, Damo, and welcome back to the show. Thanks, Steph. Great to see you. Thanks for having me again. Very nice. Not that anyone can see us, but we are nice no. and snug today so recording. Close. <laughs> so close. We're normally recording um, virtually, but today we are side by side in Sandringham. In at, the flesh. Absolutely. In the flesh. So it's good to literally see you in the flesh. At the Natural Nutritionist headquarters, HQ. HQ. Yeah. But a really cool topic for us today. Um, it's a topic that I actually get asked about a lot in clinic and looking forward to hearing your thoughts. The discussion today is all about food combining. Mm. So where do you sit as as a topic in general and maybe what your experience was way back when you started practicing? Way back. Way back. <laughs> <laughs> you're so old, Damo. No, that's not what I mean. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're very experienced. You've been practicing it's, for such uh, a long time. A long time, I know. <laughs> well, it's funny because I, in my talks, the Power of Food talk that I do, that's it's always a question that comes up. What about food combining? You know, mm. what do you think? And so then I try and break it down. But back when I first started practicing, it was the go. Like yeah. you, you always, you looked out for mixing your starches and your proteins and your fruits and your proteins and mm. you were really cautious of doing that. And even when I first was exposed to naturopathy, probably because my mum went to see a naturopath, we did the Fit for Life program, which was fruit for breakfast, salad for lunch and a meat meal. You know, in, all separate. In, all separate. Wow. Never combining protein, fat, carbohydrates because the body couldn't digest all those three things at the same time. <laughs> you know, was, the body got confused. And so there's some, you know, funny little assumptions about how what the body can handle. And so 
when I studied naturopathy, one of my lecturers in nutrition was a vegan, a vegetarian. Mm-hmm. So all of our nutrition information was based on veganism and vegetarianism and that meat was bad. And, and that if you ate cows, you would die. Heart disease. Well, you just die. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you just die. I figured I was going to die one day, so I'd just be happy eating cows. So, um, but I, um, I then went on to study nutrition and really understood the ins and outs of you know what it really was. So I went beyond the philosophy of what food was um, and how that helped the body to then understanding how the body then deals with nutrition. And that's what's probably helped me shape it. But we were originally told don't combine certain foods and and also combine certain foods to enhance absorption. So yes, both we, ways. Yeah. And so it becomes very, very confusing. But it's also a very it's a very um, simple and almost immature approach to the understanding of the way in which the body works mm-hmm. if we did food combining all of the time in the absence of infirmary or disease. Yeah. Yeah, I think we've got to think about how the body functions, you know, the way we produce the right enzymes, our acid in the stomach, which we speak about on the show quite a lot, um, you know, how we're designed to digest and absorb food, especially if we're talking about someone that's really healthy, it really doesn't make sense that we have to separate our macronutrients away from each other by certain times. And I, I think, you know, the probably the biggest culprit in this space is definitely fruit. A lot of people still feel like that they can't eat fruit with anything else because it will ferment in their gut and cause bloating or burping or gas or all of the above. But you've got to ask yourself, like if fruit is causing these symptoms, what really is going on from a root cause point of view? Yeah. Yeah, you really do. And I think that's a, that's a great point because when you think about food, I mean, the body starts to digest the moment you start to think about food. So mm-hmm. you and I talk about food right now. It's making me really hungry. Yeah, instead. the salivary enzymes. It's all cranking. <laughs> it's all cranking, but I can feel my tummy rumbling. And so I know that from a hydrochloric acid perspective, I'm secreting it. Mm-hmm. The thought of it means that the information traveling down from my brain through the spinal cord, out to my stomach, and then also to my pancreas, and also to my gallbladder, that information is not only occurring when I eat the food, it's when I'm thinking about the food. But it's not that if I think about an apple, I'm going to be sending out enzymes to break down an apple. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So, oh my gosh, there's an apple coming, I better send out some enzymes for apples. Apple enzymes. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So the way it goes. Um, And, you know, if I'm thinking about eating some fish, like if I'm thinking about salmon, beautiful piece of salmon, mm. wild caught, of course, yes. and uh, and lightly cooked um, at a <laughs> low <olive> heat, oil. <laughs> <laughs> low heat in coconut oil, um, then I would uh, it'd be a very very tasty meal. But I'm not going to wait until I eat it before I start to send that enzymes because exactly. my body needs to be prepared to digest that food. So yes, I'll chew it, coat it in saliva. Yes, it's going to land in my stomach and get coated in hydrochloric acid. Then it's going to get through the duodenum and get yeah, smacked by some enzymes and then bile is going to get there to help break down the fat. So I've got all of those different things, stages of digestion taking place and it's not salmon enzymes mm. that are being secreted. It's protein, fat and carbohydrate, protease, lipase and amylase. amylase. <laughs> <laughs> What's carbohydrate enzyme again? Amylase. It doesn't so, start with C. That's yeah. the tricky one. So I've got those enzymes all being secreted by my pancreas all blended in with hydrochloric acid, all coated with saliva. So all these things are taking place to digest it, not not for a specific food group. 
it's for all of them. Yeah, so your body obviously understands macronutrients, micronutrients, not the specific food. So I think it's really important to acknowledge that digestion starts before the mouth. Mm. You know, a lot of the time I say digestion starts in the mouth to emphasize the importance of chewing, but it actually starts before that, like you say, with the thought process. So it's important to understand the intelligent mechanisms that our body has to digest food and in a state of health, there really is no reason for you to be separating out your macros, so your fats and your proteins and your carbs. Totally, totally. And I think that's a great point that you make. In a state of health, when your body is well, you remain asymptomatic when you eat a meal and you'll just, you know, you maybe you get a bit of a burp because you ate your meal too fast or maybe you might pass a little bit of wind because there was a bit of extra chili or curry in there or something. It shouldn't be profuse and mm. it shouldn't be offensive. That's, I suppose, the message that goes on there. And if you're in pain after meals, then maybe that's when we consider approaches that might enhance digestion or might enhance the ability to absorb certain nutrients or maybe we look to eat more of a particular food um, than another type of food Mm. because that might actually assist us in healing. But keep in mind that it's not the food that heals, it's the body that heals with the food. So we want the macronutrients and the micronutrients from the meal, but the body needs to be able to get access to that. Yeah, definitely. And the fruit conversation, I think, needs to be discussed and separated out to someone who's healthy and can tolerate eating fruit with fats or proteins. Yeah. But obviously, if you are eating fruit and you're reacting to the sugar, then that's possibly a signal that you shouldn't ignore. So you might need to actually reduce your intake of fruit because we know that sugar can ferment in the gut and in some cases contribute to dysbiosis Mm -hmm. or the overgrowth of the opportunistic bacteria. Mm -hmm. But then we're talking about someone who has a state of ill health for one of a better reason. So we do need to be a little bit more precise with our prescription. I would probably say that you'd eat less fruit than going to say that you need to eat fruit on its own, regardless yeah. that myth I don't believe to be true. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. It's not about just moving it to a different place. In fact, you would make it even worse. Potentially. It would make it worse because it's unmatched, unbalanced. And so we're creating imbalance, then things would be exaggerated. So, like blood sugar control from just having a sugar. I mean, I know there's fiber in fruit. It's obviously a natural sugar, so very different to refined sugars that we speak about. But I normally get my clients to eat fruit with fat like nuts to help our blood sugar control and satiety. Yeah. So, you know, you don't want to step away from that important overall aim of blood sugar control because you're stuck back in the 70s when this myth was probably first quite like, I guess, a household conversation. Well, you think about it, you think about all of our um, diet approaches, dietary approaches, they're all based on a philosophy. Mm. Like there's not one dietary approach which is so robust in its science that it applies to every single person. Correct. So we go back to the 70s, late 70s, early 80s, and uh, way before you were thought about, Steph, that's just when I was maybe say four or five, (laughs) (laughs) six or seven. Uh, And so we look at that sort of time and we we're looking at an approach where we think that the body is incapable of recognizing different types of foods. And so we need to make an educated decision about what foods go in at what times, because that will help the body out. There's an ignorance there Mm. about how intelligent the body is. Yeah. Then we move into the eighties, kind of mid eighties and, and we look at the low fat revolution. And so there was a, 
um, a, a disproportionate amount of attention given to fat being um, because there was an assumption uh, based on some very, very bad science and very, very loose um, evidence and, and studies uh, that indicated that fat, saturated fat, would cause high cholesterol. And then the next assumption was that cholesterol caused heart disease. So much assumption. Yeah. All assumptions. And in fact, the assumptions were so flawed that these days it causes so much conjecture and argument in the scientific community. It's almost 50-50. Is saturated fat good or is it bad? Does cholesterol cause heart disease or does it not? But again, it was all based on a philosophy and just choosing pieces of information. That's all it was. Then we fly all the way through the 80s. Everyone's got fatter. Um, everyone's eating heaps of carbohydrates. Um, you've got Ironman on the television advertising Nutrigrain. Uh, saying that it's Iron Man food because it's got corn, oats, and wheat in it, and it's really high in carbohydrate, mm. and that's where for people, energy for energy, <laughs> and we got energy from carbohydrate. But what we do is we get fuel from carbohydrate. It's just fifty percent of the fuel from carbohydrate than what we might get in fat. So we end up eating more calories mm. uh, or more food, not necessarily more calories, more food in order to get our calorific intake. But it's all carbohydrate. So then we have an insulin response, and that makes us fat with diabetes and heart disease. Um, with you know increased risk of colon cancer, so on and so forth. Fast forward to now, we've seen um, Atkins come through. Mm-hmm. We've seen blood type come through. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've then seen um, modified Atkins, which I suppose you'd then just call keto. Then we've seen paleo. Oh, we actually, we saw, um, um, what's his name? Uh, kind of like more of a primal sort of approach, which is just clean eating, which kind of makes yeah. sense. What's his name? Not Mark Sisson. Mark Sisson? Yeah, yeah. Primal. Yeah, Primal. Mm. Really Primal approach. Really nice. And my eyes were opened up. I had dinner with Mark Sisson once. I don't mm. know if I told mm. you this. No, I don't know this story. Yeah, I had dinner with Mark Sisson. And we both spoke at a seminar for Thrive um, in okay. Sydney, the, yeah. the Thrive Conference. And so Mark was there and I was here. And the waiter came in and said, does anybody want to drink? And Mark said, I'll have a glass of wine. And I was like, hang on a second. You're, you're drinking wine? He goes, yeah, of course I'm drinking wine. I go, okay, I'll have some wine too. <laughs> so we both have a glass of wine. I'm sitting there drinking a glass of wine with Mark Sisson. We both had salmon um, and like an espoir salad and it was, you know, delicious. And then he had a little bit of bread and I was going, what? Dude, like, what's happening? He goes, I'm relaxing kind of my approach. He said, I've been so hardcore for so long. Um, but when I look at cultures around the world that are successfully mm, aging, he's gone the blue zones. Yeah. So that was around the advent of paleo coming out. So he's gone primal and paleo came out. He's going, hang on a second, I think we're a little bit too strict. And so we've got Lauren Cordain and Rob Wolf talking about paleo and then we've gone um, healthy fat, low carb, and all of these are philosophies, mm. which I love. Um, but they need to be applied to people at certain stages of their health and well-being. So... I did a TV show with Healthy Fat Low Carb. That's what it was. Healthy Fat Low Carb. Yours and my philosophy mm. is exactly the same. You know, in that instance where we need to help people manage blood sugar better and get the fat off and get their hearts healthy. So that's what we do. Mm. Healthy Fat Low Carb. And uh, again, it's a philosophy, but it works. Yeah, it's a philosophy, but I think one where there is finally some very strong science. Like a lot of the archaic philosophies were more opinions, mm-hmm. I feel, like a naturopath decided that food combining or avoiding fruits and proteins was the answer to health and weight loss and longevity. And then, you know, back in the day, we were probably a little bit more 
gullible and we believe that to be true. Just like with the low fat era, we've had the (laughs) the wool pulled over our eyes. We weren't savvy enough to understand selection bias or cherry picking and all the criticisms that we see in the data back in as early as the 50s, I believe. Whereas now we're finally being more critical and, and asking for that quality research and understanding what is the truth rather than just that correlation or causation conversation of the past. Mm, mm. Total digression. I love it though. Very good. <laughs> but what it does is it brings us back to kind of where, where do we start doing this food combining thing so badly? Because we look at cultures like Ayurveda mm-hmm. and they talk about um, ama and the build of toxin in the gut and mucus and all that sort of stuff and they say that all foods should contain a blend of all of the five different flavors mm-hmm. and the, those flavors are combined to complement the doshas. Yes. Right. <laughs> Very complicated. But they talk about food combining in a way to help digestion and reduction of mucus and to eliminate toxin, right? Mm-hmm. So they say don't do fruit with proteins. That's what they say, mm. which is interesting. Okay. But they use that as a form of medicine, and so that's when people are sick. Correct. So very different when we're talking about someone that's healthy. Totally right. And so then you might look at all different types of approaches. So we look at all traditional types of, of medicine, and we might look at, say, Chinese medicine, for example, who also have um, food combining rules. So, you know, around spices and, um, and, and herbs that are used in different cooking yeah. methods and then... Um, herbs that you might brew up as teas and spices that you might brew up as teas, you'd never combine certain ones because it would muck up the system. Mm. So, But only when people are sick, so when things have gone wrong. So that when there's been so much life stress, could be food stress or other chemical stress, it could be emotional stress or physical stress, when the body's broken down and it's not coping with life anymore, then it needs nurturing. And maybe that's when we might use a little bit of combining of different foods to help our body recover better. Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's really important that when we are talking about these philosophies or approaches that we're continually continuing to separate whether we're talking about someone who's healthy or someone who's not because, you know, it's going to be quite a different prescription. Yeah. So what about proteins and starches in the same meal? So you mentioned um, the, the salmon that you were having with Mark Sisson would you have been okay if there was some sweet potato, so some starch on the plate as well? Yeah, I would oh, have good. been. I'm relieved. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I think there might have been sweet potato chips. Oh, you know, my so favourite food, yes. I love them. I love them. Actually, you guys make the best sweet potato chips. Ian or these, actually. Wow. No Far credit out. here. They were incredible. <laughs> best sweet potato chips you've ever had. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. And, again, coming back to the whole idea that the body requires protein, fat, carbohydrate with every single meal mm-hmm. and whatever that ratio is, whether it's higher protein, lower carb, higher fat or whatever it is that your philosophy lends you towards in terms of health and well-being, your body requires all three of those macronutrients with every single meal. And it's not that it absorbs protein. In fact, if your body is allowing protein to get into the blood, then that's a really bad situation. We need to keep in mind that what our body is going to do is break it down into amino acids. And by the time it's ready to be absorbed, it needs to be well broken down. If we've got holes in our gut that will absorb undigested carbohydrate, undigested protein, and undigested fat, then we're, you know, that leaky gut phenomenon then causes a lot of ill health and infirmary and disease. And, and we've got to be careful of that. So keep in mind that when we're having protein, fat, carbohydrate, it gets broken down to be the smallest 
possible fraction before it does actually get absorbed. And and that's what our body is looking for. It's looking for amino acids and it's looking for lipids mm. and or triglycerides. And then it's, it's also looking for tiny little sugars, like simple sugars. Mm. That's what it's looking for. Yeah, I mean, I think definitely important to have protein, starches and fats with every meal. It's just how it looks. So if we're talking about someone with leaky gut, mm-hmm. you'd be getting them to do slow-cooked, mm-hmm. very soft, almost pre-digested almost proteins yeah, and totally. starches and fats yeah. versus you being able to have a big steak with yeah. your side of sweet potato fries and your greens. Like Totally very different delivery of food, but still with a, a similar or identical macronutrient, micronutrient profile. Yeah, 100%. So if someone came to me, Steph, and they were, you know, really tired and heavy in the tummy and their bowels weren't working really well, um, I'd look to assist them in using foods that are richer in fiber um, so that we're drawing more water into the colon and that are well digested or well cooked as opposed mm-hmm. to using things that might be you know, challenging for them to digest. Um, and, and But that would be done in the season. So like if I, mm-hmm. if that, somebody came to me in the winter, and t- I'd love to know what you do, but if somebody came to me in the winter and they're saying, I'm having salad all the time and I've got diarrhea, I'd be saying, well, that's probably because salad at the moment is not ideal. So maybe, you know, still have some salad items, but have some more robust vegetables um, in the winter to warm the body and to get the body, you know, feeling more nourished as opposed to stressed out. Um, and then that should slow things down a little bit. Definitely. Um, and conversely, if you're constipated in the summer, um, back off some of those really big, heavy root vegetables and go more to the, you know, those beautiful salad vegetables, you know, that allow water to get into the colon to rehydrate you because you're probably dehydrating as a result of the heat. Yeah, we have to remember that food is seasonal for a reason. Yet if we shop at major supermarkets and eat certain fruits and vegetables all year round, then we are messing with what nature is actually intending to deliver to us. So yes. I think that's a really important conversation to have. Um that we look to what we actually need in certain seasons. So it's that evolutionary lens. Absolutely. The other thing about um, though digestive challenges and seasonally, like I think a lot of people don't respond to cold foods in winter and that can be more of a Chinese medicine approach, which I tend to advise my gut or dysbiosis clients. But then in summer, smoothies could be really helpful because essentially they are again pre-digested and taking that extra load off the digestive system. So seasonal once again. Yeah. Yeah. Great points. Great points. I'm liking it. So where might you use food combining to enhance digestion or wellbeing or absorption? What what Mm. would you think about there? Well, I can think of one definite example and that's the vegan or vegetarian clients who are obviously um, a little bit more challenged in their options for iron. So, mm-hmm. of course, there are plant-based iron, but we know the absorption is less bioavailable. Um, we also know that dairy and caffeine can interfere with iron absorption. Mm-hmm. So it might be helpful to explore separating dairy and caffeine away from your iron-rich foods. So if you're having like a, not that you're drinking milk when you're a ve- vegan, but let's That's say true. you're a vegetarian <laughs> who's, who's drinking a latte, yeah. yes. then you're having caffeine and milk and you're trying to absorb the iron from your chickpeas. Mm. Um, That's obviously going to be mm. potentially um, an issue. So separate those. But, you know, we're talking about blood tests here as well because you may not have an issue at all with your iron. It's wrong for me to assume that vegan and vegetarians do as a whole, but it's something we see more commonly and therefore separating the dairy and the caffeine from the iron-rich foods can be helpful in some. Totally. 
some people are really unbelievably effective digestion. Yeah. Like ridiculous. Robust as. Mm -hmm. So good. You know, it doesn't matter how, what they eat or, you know, I mean, it it always matters what you eat, but you (laughs) know, it doesn't matter, you know, how they combine their foods or whatever. They just seem to get through their meal. I'm thinking of someone in particular in Northeast. There you go. Yes. (laughs) Bit of, bit of loon. Yeah, yes. exactly. Bit of gluten. <laughs> yeah, bit of gluten there, gluten Tuesdays. Mm. Um, so, you know, some people's digestion is so good and mm-hmm. so robust that things just aren't going to be, yeah. you know, too much mm. of a chance. But there are some people with really weak digestion, they'll eat something, their tummy plays up within seconds. Mm. And so, you know, wherever you sit on your scale of digestive health is probably going to determine the degree to which you need to be mindful about the sorts of foods mm-hmm. that you put in your mouth at different times. But if you are vegan, um, I'll say vegan at this point in time because it's estimated that there's at least 10% of the population is now vegan. It's the new Vogue. It's the new Vogue. Mm-hmm. It's definitely trendy. Um, and But, I mean, beyond it being trendy, there's people with legitimate reasons as to the reasons why they want to be vegan. Of course. Mm-hmm. Which is fine and I get that. It just means that if you do choose to be vegan, you need to be more diligent about the foods you're eating. You can't just go and have Macca's chips and call yourself vegan. Like That's just not going to cut mm-hmm. the mustard. Um, and you can't just go and find the alternative. You know, you can't go and buy a tofu turkey um, and think that that's going to be okay because that's not the way it's going to be. You know, I was at this food show on the weekend. Oh, tell there. me about the vegan foods. Oh, my gosh. Seriously, if you're a vegan, just eat healthy. Was there vegan chicken nuggets? You know what there was? There was this vegan patty. This vegan. The bled. <laughs> really? There's a vegan beef patty that yeah. bleeds. Really? It's all kinds of wrong. What yeah. <laughs> Like if you're vegan, you don't want to eat meat in the first exactly. place. So what are you looking for a burger for? Anyway, so nuggets. these mm. patties were made for a um, a major fast food retailer. I'm not going to name You're being names. so polite right now. I have to be because I was told this information <laughs> okay. in confidence. And this patty was rejected by um, this major fast food retailer. Um based on flavor, mm-hmm. but the patty, which is a vegan patty, was made. Have you ever guess how much this major fast food retailer needed to buy this patty for in order to for it to, you know, be put into the burger? 30 cents. Less than 30 cents. Oh, really? Yeah. Have another guess. Oh, 15. Less than 15 really? cents. Really? 10 yeah. cents? Less. 5 cents? Less. What? So a vegan patty at one of your major burger retailers costs is purchased by the major retailer for one cent that per patty. Disgusting. One cent per patty. Can you imagine what's in there? Well, all the wheat. It's, it's, this is and gross, right? Soy. Yeah. It's wheat and soy. Yeah. That's what it is. Cheap commodities. So everyone's going, try this, try this, try this. I go, no, it's disgusting, <laughs> right? And they go, no, no, you've got to eat it. It tastes like a McDonald's burger. I said, well, that's even worse, right? That's even worse to me. Um, and what, what was fascinating about this was that the cell was, it tastes like a normal burger patty, but the quality of it is nowhere near a normal burger patty because you can't make a normal meat patty for one cent. Not a chance. Not when it's it. grass-fed, pasture-raised, organic. No way. <laughs> no chance. No. And so from a vegan perspective, if you're looking for vegan alternatives to the existing real food, you're actually going to do yourself a, yeah. a disservice. So be unbelievably careful if you're out there. So where I was going with that was that if you're vegan, um, it's probably going to be important for you to eat foods that are rich in nutrition as opposed to muck around with it and just go, oh, it's okay, I'm a vegan. 
um, and, and eat poor quality food. As a vegan, it's incumbent upon you to be making better choices with mm-hmm. your food. Vegan is a lifestyle which incorporates decisions you have with your clothing, decisions that you have with your cars, decisions that you, do, you know, make with the environment, but also the most important environment is you. If you can't look after yourself, you're not looking after the main environment, which we all have to live in. So iron, for example, is going to be better absorbed with fruit. We know that vitamin C, vitamin C rich yeah. fruits, mm-hmm. you know. So you're going to be having strawberries, you're going to have kiwi fruits. Um, oranges. Oranges, mm-hmm. citrus fruits is exactly right. Uh, but you might also find yourself having other vegetables that are rich in vitamin C like capsicum, mm-hmm. you know, unbelievably great. But being mindful that if you aren't eating these foods, you will start to get deficiencies and we don't store vitamin C. And if, if you're low in iron and you end up having to have a blood transfusion, it's the Blood's not coming from a beetroot, I can tell you that. No, and that is exactly right. I think also speaking to anyone that's got a history of low iron, they fit into this conversation as well. So, you know, you could be eating lots of grass-fed, pasture-raised, organic meat, but for whatever reason, digestive, leaky gut, dysbiosis, you're still having really low levels of iron and ferritin. So you definitely could experiment with the iron-rich foods avoiding caffeine, avoiding dairy, and obviously looking for really beautiful fruit and vegetable sources of vitamin C. Mm, mm. So I think that applies to quite a few of us because I see so many low iron and ferritin levels in the clinic, Yeah, um, and that's just not only in vegetarians and vegans. But you see a lot of women as well, Mm -hmm. a lot of women. And you might see a lot of men, but I would would presume you see a lot of women. and, and we do in our practice. We yeah. see lots of women because mainly women, it's mainly women who take care of themselves. Mm-hmm. It's generally not blokes who take care of themselves. So mm-hmm. you'll see a lot of, uh, and women have a reason for low iron, uh, more so than what a man would have um, a reason for low iron. Um, so in that case, it's important for women to be mindful of the type of iron they're taking into mm-hmm. their body and that they're you know, mindful about the types of vitamin C that they're putting into their body as well. So very, very important. Um, but Obviously, with exercise, and a lot of your clients do exercise a lot, they'll be burning through iron um, and they challenge their immune system with inflammation as well. As a result of you know exercise, um, they'll, they will go through iron very, very fast. Absolutely. So it's, it's an important factor. It's an important nutrient. We all need it. There's no doubt about it. And it's another reason why I want anyone that's making the ethical decision to become a vegetarian or a vegan, you know, I want them to have that focus on their health. I, I, I appreciate the decision. I will support the decision, yep. but not if your health comes second to the environment. Totally. And again, it's about looking at the quality of the food, but also some strategic, you know, changes that you can make to optimize digestion and absorption for your long-term health. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. It's not food. It's fluid, mm-hmm. but I actually wanted to then um, move on to a conversation around our water consumption in relation to our meals because mm-hmm. a lot of people have been told to never drink water with a meal. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to get your thoughts. I've got my own, but I want to get your thoughts on this topic as well. Can you go first? Oh, yeah, for <laughs> yeah. sure. Because you always you do that. What's your thought, <laughs> And then I'll have to think about what my thought no, is. No, okay. Well, I'll no, I get it. First. Yeah, no, I'd love to know what your thoughts are around it because it is mm. an important thing. And just biochemically, the chemicals that make water are the, the chemicals that help us make hydrochloric acid. Exactly. So, so we obviously need water yes. to produce HCL, to have the right environment in the stomach and to digest our food. And the whole gastrointestinal tract depends mm. on each segment being optimal, the right pH. And 
you know, I think there is a conversation here again about if you're healthy or if you've got a gut issue. But what I just don't think that we have to do is have these really strict rules. Like mm-hmm. it's like back in the day where paleo was a religion <laughs> and nobody mm. stepped outside that box. Yeah, like, how dare you? I think yeah. never drinking water with a meal is mm-hmm. too strong a rule for us to live by today, tomorrow and forever. It's not something I see as being sustainable. But at the same time, drinking, being so dehydrated and then drinking a litre of fluid with dinner and then ending up feeling bloated or not absorbing your food properly is an issue as well. So I see it as a spectrum. I think that we want to be staying well hydrated throughout the day, never getting to the point where we're needing to scull a litre, but also recognising that thirst is often mistaken as hunger Mm -hmm. so maybe having a little bit of water before we eat not Mm -hmm. only helps with hydrochloric acid production but not overeating because we're actually thirsty and not hungry Mm -hmm. but then at the same time acknowledging that we don't want to completely dilute our digestive enzymes so it's a tightrope it is it is a tightrope that you're walking it's so true very true um and the other thing is that the body requires a certain amount of water every single day. Mm-hmm. So let's consider that. So if we drink that water all in one go or two goes mm-hmm. or three goes, then we aren't allowing our body to use that water as effectively and it then doesn't become as therapeutic as what water should be. Mm-hmm. So if we're sipping water throughout the day and we're having you know 200 mils at a time spread out over, say, 10 or 15 goes, uh, we're going to have a better response to the water going into our body than if we go, well, I need to drink two and a half litres or three litres of water, whatever it is that you're drinking or whatever mm-hmm. you recommend, um, and I'm going to do that in three goes. I'm yeah. going to have a litre with every single meal. Um, and so in that case, you're just kind of flooding the system as opposed to nourishing the system. Yeah, and the other thing is if you're going to be drinking a litre, tell me that you're not then running to the toilet and weighing half of it out. So the absorption issue is then you know, it needs to be considered. So you're much better off having smaller amounts and adding maybe some good quality sea salt or some citrus fruit to enhance the absorption and then you get more bang for your buck, so so to speak. Totally. Then, of course, at the end of the spectrum would be someone who has severe dysbiosis, who gets bloated at, at, you know, a mouthful of food or very small portions of food. In the short-term treatment intervention, we might say, okay, let's drink your water away from this meal. But hear those words short-term treatment intervention it's what we're doing to heal and correct the imbalance and then ultimately a cup or two with an around a meal should be fine in an ideal situation absolutely i totally agree with you so let's think of water as a nutrient so if we're thinking of water as a nutrient it means that it needs to be supplied to the body continuously throughout the day Mm. not just in large mega doses um at each of your major sittings for meals so it's a nutrient that the body requires throughout the whole of the day, not just in three spreads. That's, I agree. That's essentially what, how we could look at it. Yeah. And, and then what that means is that the chemicals that are in the water that enable us to have better digestion or to have better absorption or better elimination or whatever, they get to do their job. So we'll absorb more water if it's spaced out through the day, mm. which means that when we get to the point where we need to digest, we're not just trying to absorb all of that one nutrient because mm. it is a nutrient that we need to yeah. have. And what's also really interesting is that if we just drink a really big glass of water and that's our big, let's say it's a litre, 
and then we race off to the toilet. What we've done is we've created a massive amount of shift in our pressure in our body. So the only reason why we need to wee after drinking water is not because the water's been absorbed through our gut and then gone into our bloodstream and then it's been filtered by our kidneys any faster. What you've done is you've disrupted the pressure balance in your system. Mm. So in order for your body to regulate pressure, it has to evacuate water or urine. And so you're better off allowing that pressure to adapt and adjust throughout the whole of the day by having little bits of water all the time as opposed to just a massive big dump of pressure into the body, in which case the kidneys would then have to respond um, to clear it out. Yeah, that's awesome. It's not the literal water that you're drinking that you're eating, that you're weeing out. That's right. <laughs> that no, you're eating. That's right. It doesn't just have a little valve. <laughs> Mouth to urethra. That doesn't happen. No. no, but it's, yeah, the pressure changes are interesting. But I think at the same time, I do encourage us all to ensure that we're not dehydrated because low energy 101 is making sure you're not dehydrated but also that constant hunger could definitely be thirst so do check in and experiment because i think everyone's very individual yeah yeah awesome how about that's my tummy been today i actually can't hear it oh my gosh did you not have lunch i haven't had lunch no i've just come straight from the optometrist to here Mm. that's how i saw the sign on the door okay that said stop recording (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then, so yeah, so I am. Uh, I'm, I'm all this talk about food and water. Wow, I'm hankering. What are you gonna have? Um, I reckon I'll head down the road and I'll get myself a lamb salad as well. Ooh, that sounds delicious. Mm. Excellent. Well, as always, I've loved our conversation today. Lots of principles of food combining or fluid combining that you can work with. Um, Just always remembering to separate out a condition that we're trying to treat Mm. versus health. Mm. Um, But also trial and error is key, I think, because we're all such unique individuals. Yeah. There's not one rule, is there? No. And plus, it's not a rule. I think it's a guide. I like a guide. Yeah. Well, that's what lifestyle is, isn't it? Yeah. It's a guide. Awesome. Thanks, Damo. Thanks, Steph. See you soon. See ya. Thank you so much for listening, team. Make sure you dive into the show notes over at thenaturalnutritionist.com.au forward slash podcast. Now, before you go, can I ask you a favor? I'd be so grateful if you would leave me a five-star review on iTunes. I personally read every review and comment and love hearing your aha moments and takeaways from each episode. Together, we can continue to spread the real food love. See you next time on The Real Food Reel. This has been a production of TheWellnessCouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on Facebook.com forward slash TheWellnessCouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.